The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Okay, are there any more questions on the Metta Sutta we just discussed? Yes, okay. So, my understanding is when it says, uh, one never again will lie in the womb, mm-hmm. that means if we fulfilling metta, the way it's expressed here, mm-hmm. that we will never, will not come back. Well, he's, it's, it's that last paragraph, yeah. which is more than just the metta. It's not taken with views. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. So, metta plus... Yeah, I, 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 I reread that, yes. Yeah. What I was meaning is, where does meditation, all that comes in? Well, the medita- metta is a form of meditation. Yeah, okay. Now, we'll be getting further down when the Buddha talks about developing, the medita- developing say, concentration based on metta, and then adding the factors for awakening, which include mindfulness, factors for, um, analysis of qualities, persistence, i.e., right effort, Concentration. This is taking metta beyond just just the concentration because you're actually adding the discernment faculties as well. And that's how you get to the point where you can overcome the your attachment to views and your attachment to sensuality. But it, and primarily the um, we'll be looking at the various ways that the Brahma Baharas are used in the text. But one of the primary uses is as a way of getting concentration. And then from the concentration, you develop the uh, factors for awakening, which include all the discernment faculties. Because I was in a, in a concentration um, uh, retreat, mm-hmm. and I realized I had a difficult time just you know, concentrating on mm-hmm. my nostrils. Mm-hmm. So I, what I did, I did metta practice instead. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And that helps also being able to concentrate, right? Right, right. The thing is, there, there are different definitions of what counts as right concentration. Mm-hmm. And when the Buddha is talking about a con- full, you know, strong states of concentration, he doesn't have just pointing out on the tip of your nose or at any one point in the body, full body awareness. And there may be a sense of center inside the body, but your awareness fully inhabits the body right during the present moment, and it's not moving off to any other frame of reference. So I would question that one-pointedness of the concentration. That can be a very, it's a very difficult and not necessarily that, provo- that helpful kind of concentration. Because you know what happens when you're pointing at, focused on one thing, you're ignoring the whole rest of your body, the whole rest of your mind. And so anything could be going on back there and you don't know. So what you want to develop is an all-around awareness, like we were working with the breath today. And that, that gives you a much ro- wider range picking up on what's going on without, without being moved by it, which is the important part of concentration. But isn't that jhana concentration mostly concentrating on one point? Not, not according to the Buddha. Yeah. <laughs> you want, if you want, you can look at that book with each and every breath. Yeah, it's on, on the you can look at that. Anything else? 
Okay, let's go to the next. I had a question. Oh, okay. just, just on that last piece, um, you know, the the Pali is the Parimukam, you know, so a lot of the teachers like Pawauk might, for mm-hmm. example, have interpreted that, I mean, around the face or around the mouth. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, that's that's in the Satipatthana and other suttas in terms of where to mindfulness well, is established. Again, yeah. you can tra- interpret Parimukang again and again, literally according to the roots of the word. Or you can look through the canon and see where Barimukang is used. Another interesting place where Barimukang is used is in the, in, the, in the Vinaya, where they say, do not shave your Barimukang. And it turns out it means your chest. So the word Barimukang could just mean bring it something to the fore, the, fore, the, the forward part of your body, or bring something to the fore. So again, there's a question when you read a word, is it meant Id- in a, literally or is it meant idiomatically? But Barimukang in the Vinaya means the chest. You're not supposed to cha- cha- shave your chest hair. <laughs> so. How do you know they weren't meaning about your facial hair, shaving that? Because you have to shave that. <laughs> Monks, yes. Well, you would have to shave yours too. <laughs> Let's go into the next passage. Here's another passage where the Buddha is exp- giving expression of metta. It comes in the context of the three types of skillful mental action. The first one is that you're not covetous. The second one is you bear no ill will. And this is what you think when you're bearing no ill will. May these beings be free from animosity, free from oppression, free from trouble, and may they look after themselves with ease. I think that last phrase is especially interesting. It's not, not like, I'm going to be there for them. It's more, may they be there for themselves. And you think about it, which would you prefer? The ability to look after yourself or have somebody looking after you? I think, it's, I think it'll be, people will be happier looking, being able to look after themselves. And so that's what we're hoping for. And this is number 12, as the passage I told you about earlier. This is goodwill for all the, all the creepy, crawly things. Those first four names there are actually species of snakes. And I think the dark gotamakas are the, are the cobras. Okay. So we have, the story goes that you know, this, a monk was sitting under a tree, a snake fell on him and bit him, and he died. So they go report this to the Buddha, and the Buddha said, you know, if he had been spreading goodwill to all the four families of snakes, the snake wouldn't have bit him. So, and this, and this is the, the chant. Goodwill for the Virubhakas, etc. Goodwill for footless beings, two-footed beings, four-footed beings, many-footed beings. May footless, two-footed, four-footed, many-footed beings do me no harm. May all creatures, all breathing things, all beings, each and every one meet with good fortune. May none of them come to any evil. Limitless is the Buddha, limitless the Dharma, limitless the Sangha. There is a limit to creeping things. <laughs> Snakes, scorpions, centipedes, spiders, lizards, and rats. Okay. I have made this safeguard, I have made this protection. May the beings depart. Okay. In other words, got goodwill for you guys, but please go away. You know? And then ends paying homage to the Blessed One and the seven rightly self-awakened ones. 
So again, this, this is an expression of metta, which shows, again, that loving-kindness doesn't quite fit the category here. It's more, may you be well, may I be well. In this case, it means may we go our separate ways. Back when I first went to Thailand, it was orde- newly ordained, it seemed like all the cobras in the mountain wanted to come out and check out the, the Western monk. <laughs> And the first time I reported it to a John Fuhrung, he said, oh, that's ordinary, we've just got a lot of cobras around here. And that was happening every day, every day, every day. You know? I'd be doing walking meditation and there'd be a cobra lying on the side of my path. You know? And after a while, I, you know, I told him to this, and he said, after all, you know, this is not normal. <laughs> <laughs> so he had me memorize this chant and spread goodwill to all the snakes. And they went away. So. Okay. So those are the, when, when you hear about metaphrases, those are the Buddha's metaphrases. The Brahmavihara is in context. Okay, the first passage points out that being resolved on freedom from ill will and on harmlessness, those are ex- actually expressions of uh, goodwill and compassion. And it's part of right resolve, it's a part of the noble path. Passage 14 points out ways metta is helpful in engendering, as it says, feelings of endearment, feelings of respect, leading to a sense of fellowship, a lack of disputes, harmony, and a state of unity. And being set on bodily acts of goodwill, verbal acts of goodwill, mental acts of goodwill are the first three. So in other words, the way you act toward people, the way you speak to them, and even the way that you think about them should be expressions of goodwill. And that helps the group live together. So this is the kind of the social aspect of goodwill. It goes on, just for, to complete this, this discussion, um, that you, you, you share your gains, that you've gained right, righteously, and your virtues are up on the, on the, in tune with that of your fellows. In other words, that you are not below them in level. And your views are also in tune, that everybody basically agrees on the Dharma. When you have these six conditions, the you know, the community will live together in peace and harmony. Talking about harmony, it's interesting that the Buddha says that suppose there's a split in the Sangha, you have to sit down and get to the root of the, of the split. It's, okay, why did this dispute come up? And how, what can we do to settle it? He says, if you don't get to the root of it and you just try to paper over it, it's not really harmony. It may look peaceful on the outside, but you haven't really solved the problem. So in cases like that, you have to dig a little bit deeper and say, we're not going to do, you know, pretend things are okay just for the sake of harmony. You actually have to get to the root of the problem before there can be any genuine harmony. Passage 15 talks about using metta when you reflect on the fact that you have harmed people in the past or harmed beings in the past. The Blessed One, in a variety of ways, criticizes and censures the taking of life, this person reflects, and says, abstain from taking life. There are beings, living beings I have killed to a greater or lesser extent. That was not right, that was not good. But if I become remorseful for that reason, that evil deed of mine will not be undone. So reflecting thus, he abandons right then the taking of life, and in the future refrains from taking life. This is how there comes to be the abandoning of that evil deed, the transcending of that evil deed. This means basically the Buddha does not have you to dwell on feelings of guilt, because it's not going to undo the problem. The best you can do is to decide that you will not do that again. 
And this goes with the other precepts as well. And then having abandoned all that unskillful behavior that breaks the precepts, then you keep pervading the first direction, the east, with an awareness imbued with goodwill, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity. Likewise the second, likewise the third, likewise the fourth. Thus above, below, and all around, everywhere in its entirety, you keep pervading the all-encompassing encompassing cosmos with an awareness imbued with equanimity, etc. Abundant, expansive, limitless, without hostility, without ill will. Just as a strong trumpet blower can notify the four directions without any difficulty in the same way, when the awareness released through goodwill, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity is thus developed, thus pursued, any deed done to a limited extent no longer remains there, no longer stays. Now what he's referring to there is the same thing as the image I gave of the river of water. That whatever past unskillful karma you have, when you have that limitless mind state going, it doesn't, the past karma, um, the fruiting of past karma does not have an impact on the mind. So this is one, one of the rewards of developing goodwill, which is that when your mind is in that state, past bad karma does not have, can't, hit, can't hurt you. Someone once said that the, the teaching on karma was kind of a childlike desire to make sure that the world was a fair place. Karma is not a fair doctrine. You can get away with a lot. By developing goodwill. But it means you really have to be sincere in your goodwill. And what comes back at you, you know, it's not like you, you know, if you kill X number of people, you're going to have to be killed X number of times before you go to awakening. That's not the case. The, the, the results of past bad karma will be mitigated if you develop a more skillful state of mind. So here the Buddha is basically talking about how if you know you've done things wrong in the past, you make up your mind that you're going to abstain from that behavior, you follow through with that, and then you develop the Brahma Viharas um, to s strengthen that resolve, not to harm other beings. And at the same time, it's going to be a protection for your own mind. Questions on that point? Yes. So I thought in um, Majjhima Nikaya 61, he taught Rahula, his son, mm -hmm. to have, when he does wrong, to have some remorse and even to confess it to... Uh, Confessing some, is different from remorse. Yeah, but I, I thought, I, I, I can't remember the exact words, but I thought you the feel, remorse... You should feel ashamed. What's that? You should feel ashamed and loathing. <laughs> Isn't that remorse? Somewhat different. Um, you know that study they did of um, the difference between shame cultures and guilt cultures? No. This was back in World War II when the army was began you know, seriously contemplating what would happen when they occupied Japan. You know, would the Japanese cooperate with the occupation or were they going to be sabotaging the occupation? So they called in Ruth Benedict to do a study of Japanese culture. And what she, her, one of her primary main areas of focus was how children are raised in a culture, and that tells you a lot about the culture. And she, she came up with a theory that there are two kinds of culture. We mentioned it earlier, a shame culture and a guilt culture. And in a shame culture, the way the parents discipline their children is, don't do that, it embarrasses us in front of the neighbors. In a guilt culture, they say, don't do that, it hurts me when you do that. 
and she came to the conclusion Japan was a shame culture and would, would cooperate with the occupation, which was true. So there's, there's a difference between shame and remorse. Remorse is you just feel awful about something. I'm a horrible person. Whereas in shame, you said that was a, that was a, that was an action that's beneath me. Well, sometimes we talk about healthy remorse. Um, that is, you know, recognizing there is wrongdoing and resolving not to, but okay, not necessarily healthy. getting into that. I'm a bad person for doing mm -hmm. this act. Mm -hmm. And again, it's if healthy shame, remorse, guilt, whatever, whatever you want to call it. The healthy part is when you look at the action, you realize that was unskillful and it was beneath me. I shouldn't have done it. And the unhealthy one is, I'm a horrible person. I don't know how I can ever undo this awful deed that I've done. <laughs> so the Buddha is encouraging shame in that sense, in the healthy sense. Okay, then let's go on for the rewards of metta and goodwill and the others. These are the rewards of goodwill. Okay. You sleep easily, you wake easily, you dream no evil dreams. You're dear to human beings, you're dear to non-human beings. Okay. Devas like you. Okay. Devas protect you. Neither fire, poison, nor weapons can touch you. Your mind gains concentration quickly. Your complexion is bright. When you, you die unconfused and if penetrating no higher, you're headed for the Brahma worlds. Okay, these are some of the immediate rewards of developing metta. That one about dying unconfused. I've been around a number of people who, whose virtue was not all that strict at the time when they die, and they really are confused. They start thinking back on the things that they've done, and they don't want to think about that. They think about the future, and they don't want to think about that either. It's death, you know. And so the mind just start. And there's a lot of dementia comes from this. Question: It seems like the weapons and poisons and all of that can't touch you. That seems like hyperbole, maybe, because of course. Uh, we have images in the suttas of arahants being killed, mm -hmm. um, and the Buddha being harmed by um, Devadatta. Mm -hmm. Okay, Devadatta might, if the Buddha hadn't had goodwill, he might have done an awful lot more. more say, say more about that? Well, if the Buddha hadn't had that goodwill, maybe Devadatta could have killed him. The lore is that the Buddha, Buddhas can't be killed, is what the yeah, tradition yeah. Mm -hmm. says. Mm -hmm. I mean, there are many cases where people talk about how an area has been protected by the goodwill of somebody. So that even if it's not totally protected, at least the damage that could have been done is a lot less. And then, of course, the poison and fire and acid are not touching you. Which part of you are they not touching? They're not touching your mind. Where's the mic? Okay. Well, you just mentioned something about dementia. Well, I'm getting to be <laughs> 70 years old. Could you expand? Uh, do you really feel that there's some um, you know, meditative uh, um, helpfulness to, in avoiding dementia? Well, the best thing to do is to develop thoughts of goodwill, limitless goodwill. I mean, all four Brahma Viharas, if you can. 
as a habit. Because what usually happens, I've seen in cases of dementia, is a lot of habits come out at the point where you're, you're getting less and less control over your mind. And so if you've been developing good habits, those are the things you're going to show. And there was the case of a John Sewatt who had a very bad um, case of brain damage toward the end of his life. And you know, he wasn't as, as articulate as he had been before, but at least he was more aware of what was going on in his mind. And he was still a very nice person to be around. So, so dementia will not, it, it won't prevent dementia, but the dementia will be a more pleasant uh, situation. For everybody involved, yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I'd be interested in hearing a little more about dreams. And um, I know for me, sometimes if I'm particularly anxious about something, then I might, may find that I'm having dreams that don't necessarily relate to that, but could necessarily be a reflection of the state of my mind. So I'd just be interested in terms of the longer-term effects of, of uh, meditation and practicing metta. Is it really demonstrated that people have... You know, I'm, I'm getting fearful about watching any kind of violent shows, which I just don't do, because I think that's you know, not good practice, but I'd be interested, I mean, not good experience, but I'm interested to know what more you'd say about dreams and how matter may affect dreams and what people report on that. Mm-hmm. Well, generally, what, what I've heard reported is that the more, and I, my, my own experience has been, if I go to sleep right after having spread, you know, spread thoughts of goodwill, I'm much less likely to have you know, bizarre and troubling dreams. Because um, you're carrying a good mind state into the, into the sleep. So this whole thing about you know watching a violent movie right before you go to bed, <laughs> no good. It's not good. No. Or the news. Or the news. Yeah. And my only experience with movies is, um, you know, when I would fly on a when I'm flying a airplane and they have the movies up front, or now they have movies all over the place, you know, people's little screens, you know. And coming back from Thailand last time, there was this particularly violent film that this one guy was watching two seats ahead of me. And it really stuck with me for a long time afterwards. And because I don't have any other movies to erase it, now I was very sensitive that that was where all this, these images came from. Whereas if you're keeping in putting that input in all the time, you know, what, what sort of things you're laying down in your brain. But I, I have found that when you, you know, very consciously, right before you go to bed, thoughts are goodwill for everybody. You tend to sleep better, and you wake up more easily, and the dreams are different. Thank you. And John Munn made a habit of spreading thoughts of goodwill three times a day. Right when he woke up in the morning, right after he woke up from his afternoon nap, and then right before he went to bed at night. Passage 17, the Buddha here is talking to the Galamas. You know that famous Galama Sutta? This is the later part of the sutta, which isn't quoted quite as much. In this passage, the Buddha has just described a person developing all four Brahma-viharas in the way that's described in passage 15. And then he goes on to say, when a, when a, One who is a disciple of the Noble Ones, his mind thus freed from hostility, free from ill will, undefiled and pure, acquires four assurances in here and now. 
Now remember, the Buddha is talking to a group of people who have not committed to any teacher yet. So he's saying, if there is a world after death, if there is a fruit of actions rightly and wrongly done, then this is the basis by which, with the break of the body after death, I will appear in a good destination in the heavenly world. That's the first assurance. If there is no world after death, if there is no fruit of actions rightly and wrongly done, then here in the present life I look after myself with ease, free from hostility, free from will, free from trouble. This is the second assurance. If evil is done through acting, still I have willed no evil for anyone. Having done no evil action, from where will suffering touch me? This is the third assurance. But if no evil is done through acting, then I consume myself pure in both respects. In other words, pure in the sense I haven't done any evil, and pure in the sense that I, that, uh, I will not be experiencing suffering. Okay. So even if you're not willing to make a, take a stand on the question of, of rebirth, or the fruit of karma, still acting on thoughts of goodwill is a good thing, because at the very least you know, it's a pleasant abiding in the here and now, safe abiding, and you can look on your actions and not criticize yourself. By developing the, the various Brahmaviharas, you escape from ill will by developing goodwill. You escape from viciousness by developing compassion. You escape from resentment by developing empathetic joy. And you escape from passion by developing equanimity. When they talk about them as an awareness release, that means taking them to the level of jhana. Passage 19 deals with that image I gave you about the salt in the, in the river. Connects with the passage number 15. Passage 20 is where the Buddha starts talking about developing the factors for awakening based on the concentration that comes from the Brahma-viharas. Okay. Mindfulness is a factor for awakening, of course, deals with the four establishments of mindfulness. The analysis of qualities. This is when you start looking at thoughts in the mind as to whether they're skillful or not, or not and if they're unskillful, trying to figure out a way to get rid of them if they're skillful, trying to figure out a way to develop them. This is the wisdom faculty in the, in the Factors for Awakening. It's an extension of the principle of what's called appropriate attention, learning to look at things in terms of skillful, unskillful, or in terms of the Four Noble Truths, and then the duties that are appropriate for the Four Noble Truths. You, know, you see suffering and you say, okay, how can I comprehend this? You see the cause of suffering, how can I abandon this? You see the path developing, how can I develop this further? And then as for the cessation of suffering, that's something you try to realize. So notice that each of these categories carries a duty or a skill that goes along with this. And that's the basis for wisdom. I think that's one aspect of wisdom or discernment that's underestimated, the fact that it's in abandoning unskillful things or developing skillful things, that you develop your wisdom. It's not just sort of watching things coming and going, so okay, I saw things come and go, what's next? It's, this has come, if it's good, what can I do to maintain it? And learning the techniques and learning how to motivate yourself and all these other issues, that's when you gain insight into both how skillful qualities can be developed and, as we were talking earlier, the fight that your unskillful qualities are going to pick up or put up, you start learning how to see through some of their tricks.
Persistence here is equivalent to right effort. Rapture, serenity, concentration, and equanimity all deal with concentration. Now, if these are not only concentration, but it's, it's dependent on seclusion, which means concentration, and then at the same time you use that seclusion or that concentration to develop dispassion, develop cessation to the point of letting go. Again, this is where the insight practice comes in. Insight plus concentration together is working on that quality of dispassion that leads to cessation and then letting go. And the Buddha then talks about the different things you can develop. If you want, you can remain percipient of loathsomeness in the presence of what is not loathsome. If you want, you can remain percipient of unloathsomeness in the presence of what is loathsome, and so on down the line. In other words, you learn how to make your perceptions independent of reality. Now this can be dangerous. <laughs> but it also means that you learn how to see the extent to which your perceptions actually add to your experience of reality. You can look at something and say, you know, this is something that's really disgusting, and you can see something beautiful in there. Or something that's really beautiful, you can say, well, there's still something disgusting there. Um, again, you have, to, you, you have to practice this with a lot of maturity. Aren't these the four delusions, the vipalasas? Now, this is something different from the vipalasas. This is, this is an intentional switching of your perceptions. And it's kind of like learning a new language. And once you've learned the new language, and then you go back and you can look at the old language and see how artificial it is, which is a very useful process. So if you're really stuck on, say, how beautiful something is, learn how to look at it as unbeautiful, and realize, okay, it has, its, it has both sides. That helps to free you from the arbitrariness of your perceptions. I mean, after several, you know, several years of living in Thailand with no English spoken, and then coming back to America and having to get back into the groove of speaking English all the time, I began to realize, you know, this is a really bizarre language. I mean, why do we have all these irregular verbs? Was it designed to fool foreigners or something? I don't know. And some of our idioms, like pulling your leg, could you explain that one to me? <laughs> And it's good to it's good to get out of your ordinary way of perceiving things, and so this is what this is what that particular practice is for. And then it says, okay, if you can cut yourself off from both lo loathsome and what is not, and remaining equanimous, alert, and mindful, or you can remain in what's called the beautiful liberation. Now, the beautiful liberation is a kind of concentration that comes for people who tend to be visually oriented. The descriptions of the jhanas tend to be physically oriented, your sense of proprioception, the sense of the body as you experience it from within. There are other types of concentration the Buddha talks about which actually have to deal more with what you see. Some people close their eyes and it's a very visual kind of experience. So the beautiful is one level, which is this as far as goodwill can take you. Um, and then the remaining ones, compassion can take you all the way to this inf infinitive of space. Empathetic joy can take you to the infinitude of consciousness. And equanimity can take you to the infinitude, excuse me, the state of nothingness. That's how far. 
they can take you as concentration atten uh, attainments on their own. Mm -hmm. So again, none of them on their own can take you all the way to awakening. They can take you to these, these levels of jhana. To go beyond that, you're going to need to develop some insight and, and more discernment. The next section deals with ways of thinking that will help you overcome anger and ill will. Okay. Passage 29 is, 21 is just there to remind you that there are these three types of fabrication we talked about earlier, bodily, mental, verbal, and mental. And so these antidotes are ways of dealing with your directed thought, evaluation, and perceptions. And the first one is, you know, if you have trouble even thinking goodwill for your enemy, because you know that's supposed to be the, the, the standard antidote for anger is you feel goodwill, sometimes you can't bring yourself to feel goodwill to the person. Okay? So this one is for times like that. You remind yourself that if you are angry, you will be doing something pleasing to an enemy, bringing about your enemy's aim. In other words, the person you really hate is going to like the fact that you are angry, because you're going to do stupid things. Okay. Even though you may be well-bathed, well-anointed, dressed in white clothes, your hair and beard trimmed, neatly trimmed. There you are, Cheryl. <laughs> he is un ne ugly nevertheless, all because he is overcome with anger. Now, because when you're angry, you're ugly, okay? Two, when you're angry, overcome with anger, then even though you sleep on a bed spread with a white blanket, spread with a woolen coverlet, spread with a flower-embroidered bedspread, covered with a rug of deer skins and with a canopy overhead, or on a sofa with red cushions at either end. Isn't that an amazing description? <laughs> Nevertheless, you sleep badly <laughs> because you are angry. So you're ugly, you can't get any sleep. When a person is angry, overcome with anger, oppressed with anger, then even when he suffers a loss, he thinks, I've gained a profit. Even when he gains a profit, he thinks, I've suffered a loss. We've probably seen that. I had a friend who was, used to be a public defender, and they had this case where they had there were four kids or five kids were charged with rape, and so they had five public defenders defending all these kids. And she was noticing that many times the other members of the team would try to make a point, and they thought they had scored a point that helped their case, but she could, all she could see was that it had hurt their case. But they were high-fiving one another on the fact that they'd made this point. So there's a lot of you know, delusion that comes in. You, I think I made a really good point, you made a stupid point, you really lost the battle. But when you're angry, you can't see that clearly. So this, this too would be satisfying to your anger. Your, excuse me, satisfying to your enemy. When you're angry, then whatever your wealth earned through your efforts and enterprise amassed the strength of your arm and piled up through the sweat of your brow, righteous wealth righteously gained, the king orders it sent to a royal treasury in payment or fees. <laughs> So you're going to lose. When you're overpressed with anger, whatever your reputation you've gained from being heedful, it falls away. Your friends, companions, and relatives will avoid you from afar. And then you engage in unskillful conduct that will lead to a bad, a bad destination after death. So this is where you think, okay, if I give in to my anger, I'm going to do stupid things that are going to be pleasing to my enemy. Do I want to please that bastard? No. <laughs> So this, this is the low level of dealing with anger, okay? 
one set of perceptions you could use. Another set of perceptions, thinking this person has done me harm. So as you got hate, hate, hate somebody, this person has done me harm, but what should I expect? <laughs> That's how you subdue your hatred. He is doing me harm, but what should I expect? He is going to do me harm, but what should I expect? He has done harm to people who are dear and pleasing to me, but what should I expect? You, can, you get the point, right? He is aiding people who are not dear to me, what should I expect? And then finally, you do not get worked up over impossibilities. When I th the thing about what should I expect, there's a whole list the Buddha gives of possible ways that people could speak to you. And this is, he said that basically this is the range of human speech. People can say either kind words or unkind words, timely words, untimely words, well-meaning words, well, words that are not well-meaning, true or false. Now, this is the nature of speech. This is what we've got in the human realm. If you want something better than this, then you're in the wrong realm. And when you think that way, you say, okay, it's not quite so bad. You depersonalize the sting by realizing that this is the way the human, na human nature is. Years back, I remember reading someone writing about how 9-11 was such a shock for this person because, he's, as he said, it, it burst his complacent Buddhist bubble. And all I could think, complacent Buddhist? That's an oxymoron. But a lot of people do approach Buddhism that way. They get very complacent. They think, well, the world is a wonderful place. Everybody's basically good. What should I expect? People are going to do stupid things or har harmful things. Don't think that it's anything unusual. When you can think in that way, it, it takes away a lot of the sting. And it's a lot easier for you to develop skillful attitudes in response to the situation. Passage 24 gives a series of other perceptions you might you might think of when someone is in how you overcome the hatred for someone else. This second paragraph is the one about the, the cow print with the, um, the water in it. The first one is a monk who makes use of things that are thrown away sees a rag on the road. Taking hold of it with his left foot and spreading it out with his right, he would tear off the sound part and go off with it. In other words, you find a dirty rag, part of it's dirty, part of it's good. You take the good part. In the same way you treat another person's actions, you look, you focus on the good part and let the bad part alone. That way you can help overcome your hatred for that person. Over <coughs> there is a pool overcome with slime and water plants, and a person comes along burning with heat, covered with sweat, exhausted, trembling, and thirsty. Even though there's slime in the pool, he would jump into the pool, part the slime and water plants with both hands, and then cupping his hands, drink the water and go on his way. So you move out the slime, and then you just take the pure water that's left. As for the person who has no good qualities, that's the first full paragraph on page 10. This is the image of the person finding a sick man on the side of the road, in pain, seriously ill, traveling along the road far from the next village and far from the last, unable to get the food he needs, unable to get the medicine he needs, unable to get a suitable assistant, unable to get anyone to take him to human habitation. Then someone else would come along and, and feel pity for him, and do what he could out of pity. In the same way, if this person has no good qualities, 
you think, and this is what your compassion and sympathy for him says, oh, that this man should abandon wrong bodily conduct and develop right bodily conduct, abandon wrong verbal conduct and develop right verbal conduct, abandon wrong mental conduct and develop right mental conduct. Why is that? So that on the break of the body after that, he won't fall into a plane of deprivation, a bad destination, a lower realm or hell. So you have compassion for this person, hoping that this person will behave skillfully. And that's your compassion for Any questions on any of those passages so far? Here the Buddha is giving you ways of adjusting your directed thought and evaluation and your perceptions. So you can deal with a situation where someone has done something to make you angry, or someone has harmed you. Yes? The question I have is about passage 20 um, and uh, the beautiful liberation. Mm-hmm. And you um, talked about that in terms of visual beauty, and I had heard that in the past that referred to as liberation by the beautiful. Um, that is to actually enter the states of jhanas with practicing the Brahma Viharas to mm-hmm. really cultivate a beautiful state of the heart, mm-hmm. and then through that, then uh, contemplate arising and passing away, and just passing away, and then the unfolding of the. Okay, you know, and there's there's a that's just a list. It causes the beautiful liberation. There's another passage where the Buddha talks about seven liberations. And the first one is that you see forms. Excuse me, one is you see forms, and then it's light, and then it's beautiful, and then you go into the formless jhanas. And it's an alternative way of getting into the formless jhanas. In other words, you you see forms, I mean, in, in your mind's eye, you see forms. And then the forms go around, and then there's light. You're talking about the nimitta? Yeah, this, this would be people who are visually oriented when they practice. Because some people are physically oriented when they sit down and meditate. They just have a very strong sense of the body when they settle in the present moment. Other people don't have such a strong sense of the body. It's more visual. Now, it's one of the ways that you can actually get into the formless jhanas without going through the form jhanas. And there's, there's a question, maybe that's how the Buddha got into the formless jhanas when he was practicing with his two teachers before his awakening. The question always comes up, well, if, you know, why is it that the Buddha, you know, after his austerity, suddenly thought back to the jhanas? He had to think way back to his childhood when he'd entered the first jhana spontaneously under a tree. And one of the possible answers is, well, when he'd been practicing with his other two teachers, this was the bypass around the jhanas into the formless states. Okay, so you're taking beautiful to be actually rather literal and visual, yeah, and not visual so much the quality of, of, of the heart. Of these beauties, yeah. What is the word in Pali in Supa. here? Supa. So isn't that a desirable, good, ideal, instead attractive. of a supa? Attractive, attractive, yeah, attractive so, yeah. So an attractive would, um, you can talk afterwards. Yeah, but it's, basically it means beautiful. Yeah. It was a name that they would give to women sometimes, right. supa. Right. I have some questions, but okay. I can talk with you afterwards. Question here. Is there any analogy between uh, the uh, Arupa Jhana 
reaching their rupa jhanas through the beautiful and um, in the chula sunyatas Majjhima 121, it takes you from village to... It's increasing non-diversity yeah. is mm-hmm. the way to get there. Mm-hmm. So it, how, how can one think of the beautiful and, and that guided meditation? Is there any relationship? There are really two different paths. Thank you. I mean, I've, my, my experience watching my teacher teach meditation was that it was kind of like herding cats for a while. I'm trying to bring people into a spot where they're basically they're with the body and the breath is still. And different people will be coming at that from different directions. Some people were extremely visually oriented, and they had to spend a lot of time working with their visions before they could come back into the body. And other people were more into the body, but they had problems with, say, imbalance in the elements, a very strong sense of heaviness, um, great heat coming up in their meditation, whatnot. And so my, my general impression is that until you get to that spot that's on the verge of the infinitude of space, there are lots of different paths into that spot. Yes. And from there, then it goes pretty, pretty, um, in a pretty standard, it's pretty standard way. Where's the floating mic? I'm finding these passages difficult, so I apologize if somebody's already talked about this. Um, so there's a section that says one should do what one can for you know, the person who is impure in bodily behavior and verbal behavior, but it doesn't, at least not in this section, doesn't elaborate what does it mean to do what one can out of okay, compassion. Do, well, doing what you can is, is in the analogy. Mm-hmm. Like you would feel sympathy for someone and you do what you could to help that person. And in, in the actual expression of how you would feel for someone who has no good qualities at all, is, oh, may this person learn how to abandon unskillful behavior and develop skillful behavior. Now, you look at, then you look at the situation, what can I do at that point? So then instead of just dwelling on the fact that you hate this person for being, uns, you know, being so harmful, your main en- emphasis is, what can I do to get this person to change his or her ways? And if you see there's nothing I can do right now, you say, okay, I'll, I'll leave that issue for the time being. But at the very least, I'm not going to be out there trying to get revenge. Okay, so I'm... Okay, so... I guess it's a much larger issue about even if you don't feel ill will towards the person, just having the um, skillfulness to know what to do, if anything, because if a person is acting that, whatever that way is, mm-hmm. typically there's not much you can do for them in that moment, because when they're acting that way, they're in their reptilian brain, and mm-hmm. they're not going to... Mm-hmm. Well, you try, try some things. Um, I saw a father one time, his child, just screaming and screaming and screaming, and it was pretty quick. The father got the child laughing within five minutes. just saying things that the child couldn't help but laugh at, and that got the child out of the mood. In other words, you distract them from their, their unskillful mood. <laughs> I really highly recommend Miss Manners. Have you ever read Miss Manners? Mm-hmm. She's worth it. <laughs> <laughs>
she comes up with some really interesting ways of dealing with difficult people and difficult situations. I have no idea where she is now. She's in the newspaper. You also get books, collected, you know, collected columns and things. Yeah. This man is guide to excruciatingly correct, correct behavior. Yes. Mm-hmm. I have a question. Yes. Um, so, in your meditation instructions this morning, you talked about um, spreading thoughts of goodwill. I, I forgot the exact words you used, but um, in the suttas, we see the most common description of meditating in passage 15 on page 6 mm-hmm. to pervade one direction kind of it almost sounds like you're broadcasting metta in these different directions and yeah. all four yeah. of the brahma viharas mm-hmm. and then in this tradition most commonly you'll hear about having the different objects and and saying these phrases these yeah. are all mm-hmm. different tacks on it so wondering if you could say anything about the um the sutta form here, what you know that that passage and how one would work with that as an actual meditation, if that's what the Buddha said, how you should do it. Okay, well, just think, who's who's to the east of here right now? And then you just visualize out there, who out there is there anybody out there that I have any will, ill will for? And if you can't think of anybody, fine, just keep us from goodwill and, and the east, and then in the west, or the, sometimes east, south, west, north. Sometimes you see it east, west, north, south, depends. But suppose you think about going east and you hit Washington, D.C. <laughs> okay, we've got a lot to think about here. <laughs> it's okay, how can I deal with the fact that I don't agree with some of the policies that are being going over right now? And yet still have goodwill for those, those people. So may they abandon their, may they abandon unskillful bodily behavior and unskillful verbal behavior and unskillful mental behavior. Is, and, and, and would you like to see any of them suffer? Yes. And then after you get over that, you say, what would I gain from seeing them suffer? And just, it's like that New Yorker cartoon where the witches are around this big cauldron and one of the witches is tasting the brew. You say, it's too sweet, you added too much revenge. <laughs> but that almost seems like a very cognitive Type of meditation. Of course, it has to be cognitive. That's the point we're making today. You have to think these things through at the same time that you're developing a healthy breath, you know, bodily fabrication. Because that's, that's the important element. Is you, you do the thinking plus the physical side to sort of realign you know, your physical reactions and your mental reactions to things. So another way of saying it is tie yourself into a knot thinking about it and then relax that knot. Exactly. But you don't, you don't need too many knots. I mean, it basically comes down to just this, okay? Because if I want to see them suffer, what would I gain? What would the world gain by their suffering? Wouldn't the world gain a lot more by if they suddenly woke up and said, gee, what we've been doing is really stupid. Let's, you know, let's clean up this mess instead of making a mess. That would be a better thing. And that's what, you know, that expression of compassion and pity for that person is, oh, may this person abandon unskillful behavior. And you know, by trying to get revenge on them is not going to make them abandon unskillful behavior. Now you may want to vote them out of office <laughs> as a way of getting them away from unskillful behavior. But think of it in those terms rather than getting back at them. You've got to learn how to frame the issue so that it really is 
You know, you really aren't thinking, you know, you'd like to string up the bastards. But you say, I want to have goodwill for these people, so if I ever happen to meet them, I will be able to be able to act in a skillful way. Yes. But it, so isn't the important thing when you get down there that you have no, you're rooting out vindictiveness in the heart. Right. Mm-hmm. Because some people, like, I, I don't care if they've changed, I really want this person to suffer like I suffered. So rooting right. out that feeling. Exactly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have, I think, a, a rather naive question, but suffering is what brought me to this practice. Mm-hmm. So wishing for somebody else to suffer in a certain way is wishing for them <laughs> to go through the process of examining. I mean, really, some of the mm-hmm. people that my ill will goes to are people that seem to live very unexamined lives. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if that's the root, or you know, that's some of the, you know, mm-hmm. root of wanting mm-hmm. there to be suffering. It's like, well, wake up. Yeah. So I don't know if, if you know, I could. Well, I want you to wake up without having to go through suffering. You don't have to say that, but just say, I want you to wake up and leave the amount of suffering that's going to be required to them. Yeah. Without your saying, I want you to go through X amount of suffering before you wake up. I, it's maybe conflated too with some notion of. We're not saying may you never suffer at all because that's impossible. Right. But may you suffer around the actions that. Um... <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm, I mean, I'm trying to be. Yeah, yeah. I'm really trying to examine what yeah, goes yeah. on inside of me when yeah, I think uh-huh, about that. Yeah, uh-huh. It's one of those things that I can hear these teachings and yet that ill will just. Okay, you know, you've got to, you've got to examine what, what is it. You've got to examine yeah. it. Mm-hmm. And, and there seems to be another part around, I don't know, maybe social justice or something, like when somebody does something wrong, mm-hmm. they're put into prisons or jails, mm-hmm. which I've, I've never been in one, but I, my they're understanding is they're a place of suffering. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that even the old idea of penitentiaries, mm-hmm. where you would go to be penitent and mm-hmm. think about it, mm-hmm. has been lost, that, mm-hmm. It's, mm-hmm. that that whole system is... So culturally, I mean, I live in a culture where if somebody does something, mm, I'll say wrong... I'd well, if certain people do certain things wrong, yes. Yeah. That Other the, people do things wrong and they don't get punished. Right. <laughs> but there is, you know, there is some notion of... Yeah. Uh, being taught of their people that misbehave um, being made to suffer. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's hard for me to kind of work my way out of that uh, cultural or uh, But it is important that you work your way out because it's, it's not going to be helpful to you in your dealings with those people. Because you don't know how much this person is going to have to suffer before they're going to change their ways. And, you're, and you don't want to be in the position to say, well, I'm going to try to determine the amount of suffering they're going to have to go through in order to change their ways. Just try to look, think, maybe there's a possibility someplace that I don't want to, don't want to name names, but suddenly would wake up and say, oh my gosh, this is really stupid, or an incident would happen. And just leave that to their karma, but you want the general direction to be, my in- involvement with this person is going to be I want them to change the way to see their, what's wrong about their behavior. Now, if there's anything I can do that would be effective, I'd be happy to do that. 
So that, that kind of thing is part of goodwill. That's part of goodwill, yeah. It's not just, though, you know... Because remember, compassion is not only for people who are currently suffering, but for people who are caught doing the kinds of things that will cause suffering, either, either now or down the line. And empathetic joy is not only for people who are currently happy, but also for people who are doing something skillful. Ajahn, um, a follow-up to the previous questions. What if you're dealing with, you know, a difficult person, and you, when you examine, when if I, when I examine myself, my intentions are mixed. So the course of action that I can take to stop this harmful action, or at least mitigate this harmful action, I mean, it is. If I could take this action, it will, it will stop it. Or you know, mm-hmm. however, the other part of my Intention is sweet revenge. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I recognize this. Mm-hmm. Anything else that I need to do after talk, I recognize talk this? Talk to sweet revenge. Mm-hmm. Talk to sweet revenge and tell sweet revenge, hey, this is pretty miserable food. This is where you can start using perception. I mean, what would revenge look like if you were on your plate? What would it look like if you were on your plate? And how would you be eating it? Is it something you would eat politely with a knife and fork? Or is it something you'd be gobbling down? And what, you know, if you could th- just imagine it as a kind of food, and what would it do to your system? And then that begins, you know, revenge, that's not so. Or you think about what it looks like in other people. So you know, the revenge, revenge may still be there, but it doesn't have to have that big a voice in your, in your deliberations. Well, I recognize that sweet revenge is not good for me, right. mm-hmm. but it's the impulse of kind of being drawn to that, mm-hmm. you know, of um, just you know just being attracted to that because yeah. it's mm-hmm. like you know all this harm that this person has done to me. Mm-hmm. Now I can stop it. Mm-hmm. It's good. I stop it. Mm-hmm. Uh, stops this fir- person from harming other people as well, but it's just recognizing it. But you know, kind of like ah. <laughs> Finally got through. Yeah, yeah um, kind of almost wishing this person for once can see it mm-hmm. and see what they've done and just almost, if anything, apologize. Mm-hmm. Apology is not revenge. Well, just wanting them to see what kind of harm they've done mm-hmm. and feel somewhat cognizant yeah. because right now. So you now want them to feel the harm, I know they'd feel the pain before they, so they'd apologize? I'm sorry. No, just, them fi- just for them to understand what they have done. Um, I don't wish them ill will, as in I don't want them to suffer, but I mm-hmm. want them for once, you know, this person to, to know, oh, I've do, I done a bad thing, instead of keep mm-hmm. thinking, oh, this is great, you know. Yeah, well, that's, that's, that's not sweet revenge. Sweet revenge is, I want to see this person squirm before they... Mm-hmm. That's revenge. And it's saying, look, I want this person to see the harm they've done and to realize it and to apologize. That's actually the step toward their reforming their behavior. But so you look at, look at the different voices and learn how to sort them out. Uh, the one that said, I'd like to see him squirm a little bit so he can give me some satisfaction. I, I want to see, I want to see visual proof that he realizes that the hurt that I've been feeling. That's revenge. Yeah, I... Would like that light bulb to go, go on in their head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.
Okay, passage 25 talks about different attitudes. What's interesting about this, since you should develop goodwill, develop compassion, develop equanimity, pay that person no mind or attention, or reflect on the, the fact of his being the product of his actions. This venerable one is the doer of his actions, heir of his actions, born of his actions, related by his actions, and has his actions as his arbitrator. Whatever action he does, for good or for evil, to that will he fall heir. It's interesting that in the commentaries, or the later canonical parts, they equate equanimity with this reflection on karma. Whereas here in the suttas, it's two separate reflections. In other words, that one in reflection of the action is, I don't have to get revenge, his actions are going to get the revenge for me. Which is not necessarily the most skillful thought, but it, it helps to get, get you over the hatred. Okay? Passage 26 gives a perception of how your metta should be like earth. Suppose a man were to come along carrying a hoe in a basket, saying, I will make this great earth be without earth. He would dig here and there, scatter soil here and there, spit here and there, urinate here and there, saying, be without earth, be without earth. Now what do you think? Would he be able to make this great earth be without earth? The monks say, no, Lord, why is that? Because this great earth is deep and enormous. It can't easily be made to be without earth. The man would reap only a share of weariness and disappointment. And here the Buddha is saying, okay, in the same way you develop goodwill. And first you remind yourself, as I said earlier, there are these five aspects of speech. In other words, this is what human speech is like. Sometimes it is timely, sometimes untimely. True, false, affectionate, harsh, beneficial or unbeneficial with a mind of goodwill or with inner hate. Other people may address you with any of these ways. In any event, you should train yourselves. Our minds will be unaffected and we will say no evil words. We will remain sympathetic to that person's welfare with a mind of goodwill and no inner hate. We'll keep pervading him with an awareness imbued with goodwill, and beginning with him, we'll keep pervading the all-encompassing world with an awareness imbued with goodwill, equal to the great earth, abundant, expansive, limitless, free from hostility, free from ill will. That's how you should train yourselves. In other words, you try to visualize your goodwill as being as enormous as the earth, and no matter what they can do, it's not going to make it be without goodwill. So again, this is a perception you hold in mind, that this is the quality of goodwill you want. Now notice in this case, instead of starting with yourself as the first object of goodwill, you start with the person who's harming you, and then from that person spread it out to everybody else. This business of starting with yourself and then going to a loved one and then a more neutral one and further out the line. That actually comes in a book called the Bodhisambhita Magga. It's a very late edition of the canon, which some canons don't even include. So that's. And then finally, here's the, here's the killer analogy to keep in mind. Even if bandits were to carve you up savagely, limb by limb, with a two-handled saw, he among you who let his heart be angered even at that would not be doing my bidding. Even then you should train yourselves. Our minds will be unaffected and we'll say no evil words. Remain sympathetic with a mind of goodwill and no inner hate. We'll keep pervading these people with an awareness imbued with goodwill, and beginning with them, we'll, we will keep pervading the all-encompassing world with an awareness imbued with goodwill. Abundant, expansive, limitless, 
free from hostility, free from ill will. It says, if you attend constantly to this admonition on the simile of the saw, do you see any aspects of speech, slight or gross, that you would not, could not endure? And they say, no. This is then attend constantly to this admonishment on the simile of the saw. That will be for your long-term welfare and happiness. In other words, if someone's saying nasty things to you, you say, well, at least they're not carving me up savagely limb by limb with a two-handled saw. <laughs> Any questions on those images? Notice how the Buddha is using perceptions and ways of think, framing your thinking to help you think about a difficult situation, to make it easier to maintain your goodwill. And what goodwill here means is, that, oh, may these people stop doing evil things. Yeah. It's like those kids who grow up in the inner city who learn to be comedians very early on as, as the way of disarming the gangs. I've, I've, I was reading about this one stand-up comedian who said that's how I actually got started. You know, he, was, he was small and weak. He knew there was no way he was going to fend off the gangs, so he learned to tell jokes that would make them laugh, and then they'd leave him alone. <laughs> yes? Or maybe a comment, I'm not sure. Um, these, I'm now thinking more about, uh, you're saying that these are the development of skillful perceptions, and you just choose, I'm going to perceive things this way, and sort of train the mind to have that rut. It, it seems to relate, uh, I'm finding a way to relate it to dependent origination, where one chooses... This is the stuff that happens before contact, right? Mm, you're, right. Mm. you're training your mind to start to see things in a particular way in order that what happens later is more beneficial. Right. Is that, can, can you say a little bit more about that? Is that? Well, you think about what comes prior to contact and dependent arising. You've got ignorance followed by fabrications. And these are the fabrications. And then from there it goes through name and form, or consciousness, name and form. And then you get to the six senses. And so building up to that, and well, name and form includes intention, attention, what you're paying attention to, where your intentions are with regard to this. And so all this is going to have a shape. So it's not a matter of, I mean, so many people think meditation is just kind of being with the present without, any, without trying to change the present at all. And that's not how the Buddha taught it. The path is a fabricated path. You are putting together these ways of thinking that will be conducive to putting an end to suffering. So what you're doing is you're doing the process of fabrication and intention and attention, not out of ignorance but with knowledge. And that's what turns it into a path. And then the path will then yield with the un in the unconditioned. I see. So the, I see that the way I described it wasn't quite uh, correct, but I'm. When you describe it, it sounds clearer. <laughs> so, yeah. Close so th th these are fabrications that come from actually seeing, meeting experience, or intending to meet experience, not with ignorance, but, but with you know, of course, but with knowledge. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And then that produces, of course, a different set of conditions. Right. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Thank you.
Okay. Antidote for partiality. So partiality is the opposite of equanimity. Okay, this first one is why the Buddha is not so high on love. The word I translated here as affection can also be translated as love. There is love, excuse me, affection is born of affection, aversion is born of affection, affection is born of aversion, aversion is born of aversion. And he goes down in those four categories I talked about earlier. There's somebody you love, other people act nicely to them, you love them. There is someone that you love, someone acts cruelly to them, you hate them. Someone you hate, someone acts really you know, cruelly to them, you like them. And if it's someone you hate, and someone acts nicely to them, you hate that person too. And so basically this is the problem with this, is that once you have this love and affection, it's going to give rise to hatred very easily. And it's all pretty arbitrary, which is why you can't trust it, which is why the Buddha never said, develop you know, limitless love. He always said limitless goodwill. Passage 28 comes from a longer sutta in which a man has just buried his child and is on his way back from the, from the, the charnel ground. I guess he didn't bury him, just took him to the charnel ground and left him there and then came back and comes back to see the Buddha and complains to the Buddha that he's suffering a lot. And the Buddha says, yes, a lot of suffering comes from dear ones, those who are dear. And the man says, how can you say that? Joy and happiness come from those who are dear. And we're talking about someone totally deluded. Here he's just lost a son, he's been crying, and all I can say is happiness comes from the dear ones. And so he goes off and he talks to some gamblers, and the gamblers say, you're right, happiness comes from dear ones. There's no suffering that comes from dear ones. And so the guy goes off saying, I agree with the gamblers. Where did this get to the palace? To King Basenadi, who at that point was not a follower of the Buddha. And he turns to Queen Malika and he says, this Buddha of yours, do you hear what he said? That dear ones bring us pain and sorrow. What do you have to say to that? And she says, well, if the Buddha said it, it must be true. And he says, everything he says, if the Buddha said it, must be true. Get out of here. So he chases her out. So she goes and sends a Brahmin to see the Buddha. And basically say, what did you mean when you said that suffering comes from those who are dear? And the word for dear here is, all, is related to the word for love, those, who, those you love. And so here the Buddha gives some examples. Once in this same Savatthaya there was a woman whose mother died. Owing to her mother's death, she went mad out of her mind and wandered from street to street, crossroads to crossroads, would say, Have you seen my mother? Have you seen my mother? It's through this line of reasoning that may be understood how sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are born from one who is dear, come springing from one who is dear. And then there's a mother, woman whose father died, whose brother died, whose sister died, whose son died, whose daughter died, whose husband died. There's a man whose mother died, father died, brother died, sister, son, daughter, wife died. And then the final one, once in the same Sawati there was a wife who went to her relative's home. Her relatives, having separated from her husband, wanted to give her to another against her will. So she said to her husband, these relatives of mine, having separated us, want me to give me to another against my will. Whereupon he cut her in two and slashed himself open, thinking, dead, we will be together. It's through this line of reasoning that it may be understood how sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair are born from one who is dear comes springing from one who is dear. So in other words, the people you love, you're going to be parted, parted from, and there's going to be suffering. 
It can be extremely intense. So this is one of the drawbacks of partiality. Passage 29 is interesting because the different Buddhist traditions take it in a different direction. <clears throat> From an inconceivable beginning comes transmigration. A beginning point is not evident, though beings hindered by ignorance and fettered by craving are transmigrating and wandering on. A being who has not been your mother at one time in the past is not easy to find. A being who has not been your father, your brother, your sister, your son, or your daughter at one time in the past is not easy to find. Now notice in the Tibetan tradition they say you use this contemplation as a basis for goodwill. In this tradition they say, long have you thus experienced stress, experienced pain, experienced loss, swelling the cemeteries, enough to become disenchanted with all fabrications, enough to become dispassionate, enough to be released. Okay, the contemplation is, okay, you have suffered a lot with all these beings over this time. Because even if they were, it was a good mother, brother, father, brother, etc., you suffered over the loss. And as we all know, that not every relationship with your father, brother, sister, son, daughter is a positive one. So there's that suffering, too. And you think about it, this is an awful lot of suffering. So this is a contemplation for developing Sangwega. The remaining passages are passages on how to deal with grief over the loss of a loved one. Here Patajara, who has lost her son, recalls what the Buddha said to her. You don't know the path of his coming or going, that being who has come from where? The one you lament is my son. But when you know the path of his coming or going, you don't grieve after him, nor is that the nature of, for that is the nature of beings. In other words, his coming and going is just a normal part of things. Unasked, he came from there without permission. He went from here, coming from where? Having stayed a few days. And coming one way from here, he yet goes yet another from there. Dying in the human form, he will go wandering on. As he came, so he is gone. So what is there to lament? And then her response is, pulling out, completely out, the arrow so hard to see, embedded in my heart. He, the Buddha, expelled from me, overcome with grief, the grief over my son. Now today, with arrow removed, without hunger, entirely unbound, to the Buddha, Dhamma, and Sangha I go, for refuge to the sage. Okay, just thinking about the process of transmigration and wandering on, you begin to see you know, the, you know, the difference between a stranger and a member of your family, and a, between a member of your family and a stranger gets smaller and smaller. And this member of your family, you know, you didn't know where he came from, you don't know where he's going, just like two ships that pass in the night. Here's another woman who lost her daughter. Jiva, my daughter, you cry in the woods, the Buddha is saying to this woman. Come to your senses, Uberti. Eighty-four thousand, all named Jiva, have been buried in that charnel ground. For which of them do you grieve? <laughs> Just think about how many people died. So again, this, it's funny, you know, the contemplation of other, the universality of loss makes your individual loss a lot easier to bear. So she had the same response. Here's where one where Sariputta has died. Now this passage I included partly because 
the Chinese has a version which really, I think, slanders the Buddha. In the Chinese version, the Buddha says, Sorry Buddha died, and I didn't know which was, what way was north or south. I lost all my bearings. And it showed that the Buddha had a humane side, I guess. But in the, in the Pali version, it's Ananda who loses his bearings, and the Buddha, the Buddha who calls him back to his senses. So, they come to the Buddha and said, Just now, Junda the novice said to me, Venerable Sir, Venerable Sariputta has attained, attained total unbinding. Here is robe and bowl, bowl and robes. It was as if my body were drugged. I lost my bearings. Things went clear to me on hearing that Venerable Sariputta had attained total unbinding. But Ananda, the Buddha says, when he attained total unbinding, did he take the aggregate of virtue along with him? Did he take the aggregate of concentration, discernment, release, the aggregate of knowledge and vision of release along with him? In other words, the things that are really valuable in life, has the, has the death of that person removed those from life? Well, no. He says, No, Lord, it's just that he was my instructor and counselor, one who exhorted, urged, roused, and encouraged me. He was tireless in teaching the Dharma, a help to his companions in the holy life. We miss the nourishment of his Dharma, the wealth of his Dharma, his help in the Dharma. But Ananda, haven't I already told you the state of growing different with regard to all things dear and appealing, the state of becoming separate? state of becoming otherwise, what else is there to expect? It's impossible that one could forbid anything born, existent, fabricated, and subject to disintegration from disintegrating. Just as if the largest limb were to fall off of a great tree composed of heartwood standing firm, in the same way Sarabhut has attained total unbinding from this great community of monks composed of heartwood standing firm. What else is there to expect? It's impossible that one could forbid anything born, existent, fabricated, and subject to disintegration from disintegrating. And then the Buddha goes on to say, you should remain with yourself as your island, as your refuge, by taking the Dharma of practicing mindfulness as your refuge and island. <coughs> what is ironic is that previous to that, when the Sariputta was still alive, passage 33, just now as I was withdrawn in seclusion, this train of thought arose to my awareness. Is there anything in the world whose change or alteration with whose change or alteration there would arise within me sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. Then the thought occurred to me, there is nothing in the world with whose change or alteration there would arise within me sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, and despair. When this was said, Venerable Sariputta said to Venerable, excuse me, Venerable Mananda said to Venerable Sariputta, Sariputta, my friend, even if there were change and alteration in the teacher, would there arise within you no sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, or despair? And the Sariputta agrees that that would not be the case, that there would be no sorrow within him. Still, I would have this thought, what a great being of great might, of great prowess has disappeared. For the Blessed One were to remain for a long time, that would be for the benefit of many people, for the happiness of many people, out of sympathy for the world, for the welfare, benefit, and happiness of human and divine beings. And this is the interesting part of the exchange. Surely, said Venerable, Sar Sariputta, uh, Venerable Ananda, it's because Venerable Sariputta's eye-making and mind-making and conceit obsessions have been long been well uprooted that even if there were change and alteration in the teacher, there would arise within him no sorrow, lamentation, pain, distress, or despair. Now it's interesting, Ananda is equating grief with your sense of I. It's my loss, my sense of conceit, or that's making a sense of I. So when you have that sense of grief and partiality to someone that you're missing, you have to say, okay, what in me am I identifying with that's causing me to feel this? Because that's where, that's where the grief can be rooted out, by rooting out that sense of attachment to that particular I. 
So even though we regard love as a good thing, it sets us up for a lot of sorrow. And the way beyond that is to overcome this sense of I and mine around the people that we love, the sense of identification with the love. Now this is, doesn't mean, of course, that we, we are cold to one another, but just that, that sense of particular, uh, particularity that this is the person on whom my happiness depends. That's setting you up for a suffering. And that's what you've got to work on. Any questions on that? Yes. So I, I've heard it taught that, um, of course, there is physical suffering that is required in some way, and then we don't add the second and third arrow. And then there's still the question of, is there any mental suffering that is required? And sometimes I've heard it said that certain forms of grief are going to happen anyway, mm -hmm. and then the task is, again, not to add these additional arrows. Uh, what would you say about that relative to this sutta, which implies that grief, even that, disappears? Well, that's what it says, even that grief disappears. Because that, that element of grief, wherever it is, is, there's going to be an element of I and my making there, which is not necessary. Yeah, that's what I was yeah. catching on. Um, there is this, then, this additional statement that he says he would make, oh, what a great being has disappeared. And there seems to be some sense of concern there that, you know, because the Buddha was helping so many beings, this is a loss, in a sense, for mm -hmm. the whole. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, so, But that would not be called a form of that's grief, That's not really a form exactly. of grief, it's just a statement of fact. Mm -hmm. yeah. There was a... I was talking with Larry Rosenberg one time, and he was telling me how when he was in Korea, um, you know, the, the monks and the nuns there are kind of like classes. All the monks and nuns who came to the monastery at the same time had a sense of kind of it was their group. And there was this one elderly nun who passed away one time, and there was one monk who was still left from her group who just really started crying during the funeral. And so Larry asked him about this, you know, I think all advanced beings didn't cry. And the monk said, it was just, I felt, you know, like she was my sister, and it's like losing a sister, and we, you know, we practiced the Dharma together for so long. It was just a natural response. And years later, he went to see Ajahn Suwat, <clears throat> and he told Ajahn Suwat about this. And Ajahn Suwat said, well, that was a sign there was still something lacking in his practice. And then he went on to talk about how when he was a young monk, studying with Ajahn Fun, who was a student of Ajahn Mun, um, he kept thinking about, gee, what am I going to do if a John, anything happens to a John Fun? I'm going to be totally lost. I'm so, you know, dependent on him for his instructions and his kindness and his encouragement. And then by the time a John Fun finally did die, by that time a John Swat's practice was much more advanced. It was more like Sari Buddha saying it was, it was a loss for a lot of people, but he himself didn't feel any personal loss. And what was interesting for me was Lara's reaction to that is he didn't like what a John Swat said. It sounded heartless or maybe in denial. I think, you know, knowing a John Swanen, he wasn't in denial. But, but there is part of us that feels uncomfortable around people who don't feel grief. Yeah. And John, John Cha has an interesting statement. He says, Arahants are like crazy people, except they're good crazy. Okay, the remaining statements, and we don't have much time, so let me just give you a quick 
Okay, first off, you develop in passage 35, talks about how you use these various qualities, goodwill, compassion, empathetic joy, equanimity, as a basis for concentration. And then it's followed up by using the four establishings of mindfulness as a basis for concentration. And this is a really important passage, by the way. It shows that the Buddha doesn't draw a clear line between mindfulness practice and concentration practice. And the establishings of mindfulness are the topics of jhana practice. However, skip to passage 37. So, okay, there's a, there's a case where a monk enters and remains a certain peaceful awareness release. This would be any of the states of concentration that come from the four Brahma-viharas as a topic of concentration. It tends to the cessation of self-identification, that's Sagaya. But as he is attending to that cessation of self-identification, his mind doesn't leap up, grow confident, steadfast, or firm in the cessation of self-identification. For him, the self cessation of self-identification is not to be expected. In other words, you don't automatically get that insight just by doing the Brahma-viharas. Gives the example of man were to grasp a branch with his hand, smeared with risen, his hand would stick to it, grip it, adhere to it. In the same way, you're still holding on to this practice of the jhana based on the four Brahma-viharas. However, if you can get your mind to leap, having done that, then then to get it to leap up at the idea, to grow, leap up, grow confident, steadfast, and firm in the cessation of self-identification. Okay, then release will be is something to be expected. Similarly, with ignorance for the next one. So this is the passage that shows that doing the Brahmaharas is not enough. There's there's more that needs to come. For the sake of awakening. Passage 38 is the one where he's, sorry, Buddha is talking to Don and Johnny as he's dying, as Don and Johnny is dying, and then teaches him the way going to the, the Brahma worlds by developing the Brahma Viharas. And then at the very end, the Buddha chides him, says, Why, why Sariputta, when there's still more to be done, having established him in the, in the inferior Brahma world, did you get up from your seat and leave? The thought occurred to me, Lord, these Brahmins are set on the Brahma worlds. What if I were to teach Dhananjani the Brahman the path to union with the Brahmas? And the Buddha tells him, Sariputta Dhananjani the Brahman has died and reappeared in the Brahma world. So he missed his chance to get him to awakening. So again, this. Similarly, with passage 39, this is how you instruct someone. who's on his deathbed. First, remind them to gain confidence in the Buddha, Dhamma, and the Sangha, and in their precepts. Ask them if they're concerned with their wife and father, their wife, excuse me, mother and father, wife and children. You should remind them, okay, if, if you feel concerned for your wife and children, you're still going to die. If you don't feel concerned for them, you're going to die. It would be good if you abandoned concern for your wife and children. And then you take them up to the various levels of the heavens, up to the Brahma world. If you should say, my, my mind is raised above the... This is next to the last paragraph. My mind is raised above the devas, wielding power over the creations of others, and is set on the Brahma worlds, he should be told, friend, even the Brahma world is in constant and permanent, sub included in self-identity. 
it would be good if, having raised your mind above the Brahma world, you brought it to the cessation of identity. If he should say, my mind is raised above the Brahma worlds and is brought to the cessation of identity, then I tell you, Mahanama, there is no difference in terms of release between the release of that lay follower whose mind is released and the release of a monk whose mind is released. Okay, it can happen at death that you, you actually attain the waking, but not if you get stuck on the, on the Brahma worlds. Passage 40 talks about developing concentration out of these four Brahma Viharas. And if you die within that attainment, then if you are a noble one, you don't have to return from it. But if you are not a noble one, you fall back down again. Forty-one and forty-two talk about how to develop discernment based on concentration. Let's look at 42. Okay, you've got this awareness at least of goodwill is fabricated and intended. That's how you contemplate it. You look at this in terms of the fabrications. And we've talked all along that this is what you've got to do. You've got to fabricate these states. And as you get more and more used to it, your, your conscious sense that they are fabricated begins to fall away because they some, come so much more easily. And then once you've got them really solidly there, then you have to go back and remind yourself, this is fabricated, this still is dependent on conditions. If I want an unconditioned happiness, I have to go beyond this. So again, there has to be some insight into the process of fabrication. And it's easier if you are conscious of the fabrication to get you there. And it goes on to say, now, whatever is fabricated and intended is a constant subject to cessation. Holding that perception in mind, staying right there, you may reach the ending of the affluence, in other words, become an arahant. Or if not, then through this very dharma passion, this dharma delight, in other words, you have, a, you have a taste of the deathless and you immediately latch onto it. And there's a sense of identification that gets built up around that. This is one of the reasons why we have to say that even, even the unconditioned is not self, so that you can peel your attachment away from that. Through this very Dhamma passion, Dhamma delight, and from the total wasting away of the first five fetters, you are due to be born in the pure abodes, there to be totally unbound, never again to retain from that world. That can be done either with goodwill or compassion or empathetic joy or equanimity as your topic of concentration. <laughs> so, we railroaded you through the last passages. <laughs> Thank you. Um, um, can you clarify a small confusion? In forty-something, uh, there was the reference to the cessation of identity. Mm -hmm. Is that the same as release from the fetter of conceit, the conceit that I am? No, it's actually the release from. Uh, um, Sakaya Titi. Mm -hmm. There's a hand back here. Oh, hand over here. Yeah, I, you're going through these fairly quickly near the end, and I, <laughs> I did notice there was one point at which you did mention Samvega, mm -hmm. and um, I had never thought of that in terms of 
uh, cultivating the Brahma Viharas, but mm-hmm. is, are, are they included? I mean, yes, yeah, maybe you could say Sanwega is great for equanimity. So, oh my gosh, this is what the human condition is like. And it gives it, <clears throat> especially if, um, when you're dealing with feelings of being partial towards a particular person and seeing that person suffer. Sangwega can help pull you out of that the intense personal pain that you feel over that. So is Samvega um, akin to equanimity? It can be used as a help to equanimity, yes. Now, if it's not balanced with basada or a sense of confidence that there's a way out, it can get very depressing. So you've got to balance those two. There's a question back here. Could you clarify um, what um, developing equanimity towards a person looks like? I think I have a sense of equanimity, but I'm not sure if I know the practicality. Okay, suppose you've got a family member lying sick in bed. And you've done everything you can for them, and they're still sick in bed there. You say, I can't let myself get worked up over this, because it's not going to help them. And one of the monks at the monastery, his father was dying, and... The grandmother was in the room sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And he said, well, can you please get her out of the room? This is not helping the father. So he said, okay, what, it, what can I do right now to help this person? A lot of things I'd like to see the person you know, get up from bed and be able to walk around and be healthy again, but it's not going to happen. So that's, you have to be equanimous to that fact. Okay, I'm not going to let, let my mind get worked up over that. And they said, okay, given that, what can I do? So that would be what the equanimity would be. I mean, you look at, and we have lots of cases like this now with the media. I mean, you see all this suffering from all over the world. And part of you says, gosh, it would be horrible if I just turned my heart away from that. But if you leave your heart open to all of that, then you get debilitated. You get, you get so depressed and you can't do anything. You say, okay, this is not helping. I've got to be able to focus my energy where I can make a difference. And develop equanimity for the you know for everybody else. Yes. Um, when you go over the whole of this gist, to get the concentration, mindfulness, um, equanimity, and empathy, everything you have to be in the Brahma Vihara. You have to be what? In the Brahma Vihara. This is, um, you're working toward having a Brahma Vihara by developing these qualities. But at the end stage, when you're going to be in the death stage, you are going to be detaching completely from mm-hmm. this Brahma Vihara. Well, yeah, I mean, Brahma Viharas are not awakening. You try to let go of what, even whatever sense of identity there might be within those states. But the, that, as in any form of concentration, this gives you a foundation for looking at where in the mind am I still holding on? Where in the mind am I still trying to fabricate something to gain a higher level of happiness? I mean, these are, these are very refined levels of fabricating happiness. And then protecting that happiness. You usually use the equanimity to protect that happiness. But even then, as long as it's a fabricated happiness, it's still not quite reliable. And that's, that's why he says, you, you look at it and see this too is fabricated and intended, and you incline your mind to something deathless. What doesn't die. Okay. Thank you. 
Can you hear me? Okay, yeah. Um, concentration seems to be a great problem nowadays. Mm-hmm. Concentrating on things and uh, some people tend to lose it a lot more or they never get it. Mm-hmm. And uh, I had a lot of it, I think I'm losing it. So what's your best advice to get back into it or, to get, or make it better? Um, get the book with each and every breath and look at the breath and meditation instructions there. And then you can compare, you know, the way you're concentrating, you can compare that and see, if you're, see what you're missing in your practice. Thank you. Yeah, I, I got Thank you. There are lots of copies over on the, on yeah, the thank you. table over there. Yeah. You had a question here? So in a room where somebody is dying, would the person who's dying be the trump card? That's the person you think of most? Like you said, the monk saw, this is not helping. Mm-hmm. You mean the person who's dying, right? Right, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So, so would then you say? You've got to, for the time being, this person is going through a lot more right now. It can depend. You have a big ter- determining effect on where they're going to go. Did I lose you when I raced when we raced through all those passages? <laughs> yes, question. <clears throat> Ajahn, may I ask you a question about karma? Mm-hmm. Um, earlier in, in the morning, you had a metaphor about a field of different mm-hmm. seeds sprouting. Um, given that we don't know where we'll end up, right? You know, mm-hmm. tomorrow we could be homeless and mm-hmm. what have you next lifetime. Um, we can make our best effort now, but I feel almost a little overwhelmed with the thought that even though I'm doing the best I can or I'm making an effort, mm-hmm. God knows what mind state am I going to have in the next lifetime. Mm-hmm. Well, the best you can do is the best you can do. <laughs> and so you say, well, I don't know the particulars of where I'm going to be or where I'm going to end up. But I do know that I will need more mindfulness, and I'll need more alertness, and I'll need more discernment. Those are things I can work on now. And I think for me it's a little scary because when I was brought up, mm-hmm. I had almost an aversion to Buddhism. Mm-hmm. Um, even though I'm Chinese, I have aversion to Buddhism. Mm-hmm. But I'm thinking, boy, you know, in the next lifetime, mm-hmm. you know, what if and none of these habits sticks? Mm-hmm. These trying to be, you know, skillful habits I'm trying to develop. Well, just remind yourself, the good things are never lost. So they may not come exactly when you want them, but they're there, you know. And, you know, the more good energy you put into things, the better the energy you're going to get out. So have confidence in that. And that's what balances the Sangwega when you say, oh my gosh, this is huge and anything can happen. Okay, there is a, there is a path out. There is a and people, reliable people, have been following this path, and they all say it really works. And so you keep that thought in mind. And the other thought the Buddha has you keep in mind is, they can do it, they were human beings, I'm a human being, why can't I? Yeah. Keep you. that thought in mind. Yes. I'm just trying to remember, um, I thought there was a sutta where the Buddha sort of lamented the loss of Sariputta. That's in the Chinese canon. Is that only in the Chinese? Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, mm-hmm. um, 
it also it's just it seems like if you do lose somebody close to you there is a natural sadness that doesn't have to be suffering it just mm-hmm. you know obviously my father passed away it wasn't it, it's just I mean I see there's the connection that you my father but um, mm-hmm. you don't have to necessarily suffer it just it, it's like uh, storm clouds come and go mm-hmm. to some extent mm-hmm. no I mean mm-hmm. There's going to be some natural sorrow, but you don't have to suffer over it. No? Well, the sorrow doesn't have to be there. That's the interesting thing. I think in my own case, you know, having lived around a lot of the forest of John's and seeing them dealing with you know, the death of a teacher, the death of a student, and it's just very matter of fact. I guess my experience was I, my father did die a couple of years ago, and they had a service for him in the Episcopal Church, and at the end of the service, they they had some happy song they wanted to play, or that we mm-hmm. they did play, mm-hmm. that was kind of like now he's going to be in heaven or whatever. And not believing in that, that <laughs> myself, uh-huh. I kind of felt felt that that song was really inappropriate, inappropriate yeah. for, for how I felt. And mm-hmm. I wasn't overwhelmed with grief, but I was definitely. It just was not how I felt, and I couldn't really get behind that choice. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're facing with you know, the inevitability of the impermanence of life. It's not something you celebrate. You know? yeah. yeah. I mean, even in Thailand, where they tend to be pretty equanimous in the funerals, the funerals are a lot less grief-sticking than they are here in the States. Still, they don't play happy songs. Okay. Thanks. That, yeah. that makes me feel better. Yeah. <laughs> Um, I can uh, give a, a, a testimony and uh, thanks to the practice because I my when my father died um, in uh, gosh when was that ninety nine he was very similar to what you described with the monk it was very easy for me to accept that this is his time mm-hmm. it wasn't so easy for other members of the family and but I, and I, it was very clear with him and also when my mother died I, my Cheryl and I were both were both there and, and some of my siblings. And it seemed like the ones that could accept that this is their time were there, and the ones that couldn't weren't. Uh, what was more difficult was dealing with the family afterwards, but nonetheless, I was there for them. And, um, and I feel very grateful for that. And I'm sure the practice was a, was a huge part of that, uh, that experience. And that was a long time ago. I meditated for quite a while before then, but not so much in this tradition. And... Uh, it was very moving, still very touching. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, um, it says in the rewards for the Pramavaras that uh, one is dear to human beings. Mm-hmm. And so, um, does it mean then that you're causing them to suffer if. Um, being dear or feeling dear actually causes attachment and suffering? The attachment is their business. Oh. <laughs> it's not that you go around to be nasty to people so they don't get attached to you. But, <laughs> but I mean, they, you can be dear to them and they can deal with you in a way that's not so attached. That's their skill or lack of skill. But in terms of the reward that comes to you, okay, they're less likely to do nasty things. There was a time when John Lee was going to be making some amulets. The, the, 
Buddhist year, 2500, was in 1957. And so there are lots of celebrations going on all over Thailand. So he decided to have a celebration at his monastery. And they made amulets to hand out. And the question was, what kind of amulets were they going to make? And in Thailand, they have several kinds. There's ones that will protect you, you know, by just, you know, creating this field, field force around you that protects you from bullets or dangers or everything. Then, they're, they're, then the meta amulets, which will make people like you, that kind of stuff. And so he decided, well, how about, he said, how about the best protective amulet is one where you spread meta. People are going to like you. They're not going to kill you. So it's the protection against developing animosity, basically, is what we're talking about. If you have goodwill for other beings, it's much less likely for them to develop animosity for you. Oh, thank you. Everybody content? <laughs> oh, yes. Thank, thank you very much. And it was really a very enlightening experience. Thank you, sir. Okay, well, thank you all for your attention. Okay.